0: Welcome to The Cinema Silo, a podcast where three sisters recreate the post-movie theater experience. I'm Jesse. I'm Frankie. And this is Annie. Thanks for coming back for our second part of our summer series. Last week we talked about The Talented Mr. Ripley. This week it's my pick, and I picked Jaws. Um, This is not my favorite movie this is a movie that I thought fit <laughs> the theme pretty well. And just a, a quick synopsis Jaws is the 1975 film directed by Steven Spielberg, who was 27 years old at the time, very early in his career. Wow. It's set off the coast of Massachusetts in the summer, shark attacks terrorizing a small town called Amity. It's based off of a 1970s. Novel of the same name by Peter Bletchley, and it's basically the story of this town being terrorized and then the hunt for the shark. I I think this movie was a lot of fun to rewatch. Mm-hmm. Um, what what did you guys think of it?
1: Jaws was so much better than I remembered. Totally, yeah, agreed. Worth revisiting. Yeah, when we were kids, I'm sure you know we definitely watched this. But watching it again for this like summer series. I saw it totally differently, and I have a much deeper appreciation for it than I did as a as a kid.
0: Mm-hmm. I love revisiting these things that I watched years ago and seeing like a whole other political or economic
1: layer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and this is definitely one of those movies. Like full disclosure, I I read the book before I rewatched it, and
2: because I was thinking, you know, who wrote the book? I didn't even know it
0: was, it was a Peter book. Peter Bletchley. Yeah. Peter Bletchley, who's a short cameo as a reporter on the beach in this yeah. movie. Sweet. Yeah, so and I hated the book. I thought it was terrible. Well, the, the main thing I hated about the book was how racist and misogynist it was. But mm-hmm. what I really liked about it was that it it had more of this economic political conflict between the police department and the police chief who wants to shut down the beach to keep all the citizens safe Mm -hmm. from the shark attack, and then um, politicians who want to keep the economy of the town going, who don't want to drive away the summer business because that's what they... survive on. They need to earn all their money in the summer months from vacationers, right. from long-term rentals so that people can even survive through the winter. That is laid out so much more clearly in the book and you I think you have to search for it a little bit in the movie. Yeah. To I me, mean, to me that reminded me so much of COVID because it's like something's going to kill everybody, but the businesses just want to stay open and the government won't act and you know, no one listens to the scientists. Right. <laughs> yes. Martin, you, you're going to shut down the beaches on your own authority? Well, what other authority do I need? So technically, you need a civic ordinance or a resolution by a board of select. That's just
1: going by the book. We're really a little anxious that you're, uh, you're rushing into something serious here.
2: Yeah, I totally didn't remember that aspect at all, like the tension between the different parties. <laughs> totally didn't remember anything but the shark and yeah. the scene on the boat.
1: All I remembered was the scene where the men sit around and drink and talk about their scars. I remembered the shark and a couple of like the cinematography parts of this movie and the editing that, you know, the dolly zoom. There are a couple elements of this film that are so famous that it's become that Mm -hmm. in my mind, but actually watching it, uh, shocking especially watching it after the year of 2020. It was a totally <laughs> different experience. <laughs> like, and yeah. um, and Jessie had read the book, and so she knew you know, we had chatted a little bit before I even watched it, and so I had a, an idea that this was going to be uh, surprisingly prescient.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
1: can't wait to dig into that today because, you know, especially after a year of t- like 2020 that is so transformative in so many ways... Beyond what you can anticipate, I never thought that rethinking Jaws was going to be one of them. This is gonna be fun. Should we just lay down like the main
0: characters first?
1: Yeah, go for it.
0: All right. So the the main character is Brody, the mm-hmm. chief of police. He's the the authority figure. He's from New York City. He's a transplant. He's not an islander. And there's definitely like a strong division between who's an islander, who's born there, and who's who's not an islander who's seen
2: as an outsider. Well, apparently Charlton Heston wanted to play Brody. Really? Yeah. But Spielberg said no because he thought he was just like too too much of like a big star, too much of a big personality to play that kind of a character who has to feel like he's a part of like this small community, you know.
0: Mm. Those damn dirty sharks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very glad that Charlton Heston is not in this movie. He would yes. have totally overpowered everything.
2: Yeah, can you imagine?
0: Yeah, I love Richard Dreyfuss as mm-hmm. Hooper, the the ichthyologist.
2: Apparently, Spielberg wanted John Voight for that role originally. Huh.
0: See, he wouldn't have had that scruffy, like fun Richard Dreyfuss nerd feel. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, the next major character is Quint, who's a, a rough and salty fisherman who's played by Robert Shaw so that the movie in my opinion really gets good and is most memorable about it halfway through it's the last half when they're on the boat mm-hmm. in the first half all the shark attacks happen suspense building the politics and then eventually it's these three men like on a boat
1: <laughs> chasing the shark or the shark chas- chasing them well, Robert Shaw himself... Robert Shaw was an alcoholic. Mm. And we'll probably get into the dynamics between these three men as we yeah. talk about the movie. But a huge thing in the movie is the antagonism between Robert Shaw's character, Quint, and Richard Dreyfuss's character of Matt Hooper. Apparently that was real on set, but the two of them could not stand each other. And Robert Shaw's alcoholism was actually a real problem, because there are many scenes in the movie, memorable scenes, where he is supposed to be intoxicated, and apparently he would just turn into a real just piece of work whenever he had anything to drink. Famously, Richard Dreyfuss just took a drink out of Robert Shaw's hand and threw it into the ocean. <laughs> just like, to make a point. Like, someone needs to cut this guy off.
0: One of my favorite scenes is is a scene when they're all drinking together. Uh, it's when they're on the boat and they're comparing scars. And they seem to finally be bonding. Quent's character is like... Okay, yeah, you can hang, Hooper. Like, you've got the scars to prove. (laughs) Yeah, but
1: But it's also so masculine. It's so masculine because they get Mm -hmm. so competitive with each other. Even though they're bonding, and this is as tender as it gets, they're still competitive, (laughs) where they literally have their legs on the table over each other by the end of this conversation.
2: You want a drink? Drink to your leg. I'll drink to your leg. Okay, so we drink
0: to our legs. <laughs> like one of the things that Jaws is really known for is following the the don't show the monster rule. Like yes, the idea of you never show the monster that makes it less scary once you finally see the monster. So, what do you guys
2: think about that? It's the same technique used in Come and See, which we talked about. Right? Yeah. This idea of the encroaching monster. Um, it's very Hitchcockian. What's actually scary is when the audience knows what's going to happen, when the audience knows more than the people on screen, and we have to watch it play out. So that's kind of what happens with Jaws up until the end when they're actually on the boat trying to get the shark. Like We know the shark is in the water, but the people don't. And that's where the fear comes in. What's what's more scary is the is the encroachment is the unknown is is knowing that there is a monster who's going to come, not actually the monster itself,
1: although like the shark is pretty scary, too. I'm gonna say. I love how it's not just what they don't show. It's also what they don't mm-hmm. say. Mm. that a lot of the dialogue in this film is very minimal. and it's mostly based in a visual language to communicate what's going on. After the first attack on the first girl who's killed by the shark, I mean, Chief Brody won't even say that that's what killed her. We see him sit down to a typewriter and say, possible cause of death, shark attack. And he never says it to anyone around him. Mm -hmm. And that just, that's one of the first things that drove home to me that, oh, wow, this is going to be a movie that relies heavily on watching one unfolds and we're not going to tell you we're not going to say out loud what's happening and we're going to just rely on the visual language and the editing and all of the tricks of cinema to mm-hmm. tell this story
0: so in researching this i found out a lot about the history of the production of the movie mm-hmm. that they were really limited and so a lot of the things that ended up in the final movie and that make the movie so great are things that they had to do to adapt and to compensate for a lot of production issues. Um, so they had mechanical sharks, but and they had originally wanted to show the shark the producers had even suggested that they train a great white shark. Oh my um, gosh! And so, oh, and so they, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah and so, like Spiel- Spielberg got um, this guy Bob Mady or Maddie, um, who made the squid prop for the Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Oh. So he was supposed to make the shark that we would see, and there were three sharks, like. One where you could film it from the right, one where you could film it from the left, and then another that was like a full shark head. Mm. But they kept breaking down and they were really hard to maneuver. Once they got into the salt water, because it interfered with the mechanic, Bill was like, okay, what do I do now? I have to pivot because I can't show the shark in the way that I wanted to. He says, I just went back to Hitchcock. What would Hitchcock do in a situation like this? It's what we don't see, which is truly frightening. Yes. You know, imagine if those props had actually worked. It would. Yes. Yeah. Maybe Spielberg would have totally flopped. And maybe that would have been the end of his career. (laughs)
1: Yeah. It's these white guys failing up, you know. What is that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then the, the script, it went through four or five different Writers, four or five different drafts. the final script writer was Carl Gottlieb, who's actually a sitcom writer. Hmm. And so he took this like unfinished script and he polished it. But some of the best scenes, some of the best lines are things that he added. A lot of the dialogue on the boat between Schneider, Dreyfus, and Shaw between the three guys on the boat were from Carl Gottlieb, like hanging out with them on set and then adjusting the script mm. and like some of the, the best lines like you're gonna need a bigger boat oh yeah they definitely did like all like stumble into this really great
2: film i think another element of the technique the holding back like you, that what you don't see is what's frightening is john williams's score the music is so good and it really sets the tone and the atmosphere
1: Like, I almost wonder what the movie would have been like without this particular score. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's hilarious that it's kind of like, what, two notes that John Williams kind of put this together and just... (laughs) I I just can't imagine being in the room when he had to show that, like, play that for Spielberg and be like, yeah, that's what (laughs) I came up with. Like, (laughs) this is what's going to make it great. (laughs) Like... (laughs)
0: when spielberg first heard it he thought it was a joke
1: because he's like that can't be it <laughs> right i mean that makes sense that is a totally reasonable response like <laughs> yeah yeah. Um, right. yeah but it's also like the confidence and like the genius that goes with it it does it transforms the movie yes yeah and it transforms those two notes now you those two <laughs> notes can't be played just by themselves so without true. people thinking of a shark attack like that is incredible I also think that the music throughout the movie, beyond just the sharks theme, I guess right. is what you would call it, um, but the music throughout the rest of the movie is also excellent. And and absolutely, I was trying to imagine by the end, what would this scene be like if you didn't have this music soaring and mm-hmm. making him climbing up right now look like the most heroic thing I've ever seen, right? Yes. It really does play such a pivotal role in transforming a lot of their actions either into something ominous or heroic. Wait, we have a question. Is this is this John Williams' first big
2: movie? No. I think it. No, it wasn't. I thought it was no, his first like big. He, you know? Okay, what
0: was? No. So he he already had one Oscar. So he won oh. he won his second Oscar for Jaws, but he had already won an Oscar for Fiddler in a, on the Roof. Yeah. He did what?
1: He did yeah. Th- I didn't know um, he did that.
0: yeah.
2: Um, he won an Oscar for adapted. Yeah. Bet, okay, I looked it up. He won. He won for best scoring adaptation and original song score for Fiddler on the Roof in 1972. Um, he had previously been nominated for Valley of the Dolls in mm.
1: 1968
2: and Goodbye, Mr. Chips in 1970.
1: Wow.
0: He did Star Wars and he got an Oscar for that, and that was George Lucas. But then after that, the rest of his Oscars or the other two. So three out of his five Oscars are directly related to Spielberg. Mm-hmm. But he's been yeah. nominated like almost 60 times. It's insane. Wow.
2: It's so wow. crazy. Just last year for the the Rise of Skywalker, too. Very recently.
0: He's still at it. Still, <laughs> still going. Yeah. In high school, we played a John Williams compilation
1: in, mm. in, in band. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it makes it less um, absurd to picture him giving the shark theme. To Spielberg because he'd already had a couple Oscar situations right under right his right, right at this point. <laughs>
2: you
1: know he's he, the confidence is earned at that point.
0: Like, <laughs> and it's not like Spielberg had like the upper hand at that point. Like you couldn't be like, well, like he's just like his twenty seven year old crazy newbie.
2: I had no it's- idea he was so young. <laughs> he's so young. What? Yeah. And
0: he went so the schedule for the shooting was supposed to be 55 days it went 159 days because of the challenges of the weather and technical issues and because like shooting the boat scenes they had to wait until there were no other boats in the background because they didn't have the digital editing where they could just make them disappear Mm. Like they had to wait until like like it was just
1: wild right that makes my stomach hurt (laughs)
0: <laughs> and, and it went way 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 over budget just Ugh, like of course man. it did yeah and how did they not just pull the plug in the middle of this right seriously like, and so he's got like oscar winner john williams tied to it <laughs> and then the editing Jaws is studied in film schools for its editing, because it's got so many mm-hmm. great innovations and really excellent uses of editing to help tell the story to build that tension. And it's edited by a woman named Verna
1: Fields. She was called Mother Cutter. Mother. She was the Mother Cutter. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> they used to call it editing cutting, so... And editing actually
0: used to be primarily a woman's job because you had to sit there and like physically cut the film and it was like... It's like sewing. I think the editing made Jaws, like
1: without... Oh, yes. And Verna Fields is super famous. She's like one of the greatest all-time editors. Yeah. I mean, this was her last big project and she'd been working since the 40s. Like, her first movie, I'm pretty sure, was, like, a Fritz Long movie. Really? Wait, hold on. Let me look this up. Yeah. Fritz Long's 1944, The Women in the Window, was edited by Verna Fields. Wow, that's so cool. And she taught at uh, the University of Southern California, USC, where a lot of mm-hmm. the big guys in the 60s and 70s came up, Spielberg. And she taught George Lucas. And she edited work for him. She edited for Spielberg. But she insisted on, live, like, being on set. Like, she was involved in the production and she lived in Martha's Vineyard through Jaws because she wouldn't wait until the end of production to start editing. She would edit on site. Oh, neat. Yeah. Which was super cool, but it also kind of contributed to this maternal feeling where she would have her own house and she'd have her editing suite and she would invite people in and she would cut sequences together throughout the shoot.
0: That's awesome.
1: She's so cool. (laughs) I think she's so great. (laughs) And But her editing, like, that's what makes the film sing. To me, like, Verna Field's yeah. editing is so much of the greatness of Jaws. It comes from her.
0: Editing is not something that I really notice. Like, I, I take the movie in, but I'm not able to be like, oh, yeah, that editing technique back there, that did that for me. There's this one scene. It's the scene when the second shark attack is happening. And Brody is on mm-hmm. the chief... Chief of Police Brody is on the beach, and there's something called a wipe by cut, which is a term that she coined, mm-hmm. where, like, someone's walking by, like, in the foreground, and whenever someone walks by, then you cut to a different scene, so, like, for Brody, it would get closer and closer and closer to him as mm-hmm. p- different people would walk by, and I was, like, reading a description of that, I was like, I don't I can't picture this, so I had to go and find a clip and watch it. It's like, oh, man. <laughs> Like, that's amazing. Like, how did I not even (laughs) see that? But yet it totally affected me. Like, I had the feeling that it wanted me to have, but I couldn't tell you why.
1: Yeah, no, but I think that that's a huge part of it. I think a huge part of it is wanting that seamlessness. And that's what makes her a master. 15, 20 years before this, you had the French New Wave doing all this wacky, goofy editing stuff over in France. And Spielberg was knew all of that and was interested in that and of course so did verna fields and they wanted to do something with their editing that was different from the traditional continuity editing of hollywood but they didn't want to go full french new wave you know this is a very american story but there is an element of it where she's exploring and playing with the visual language of editing where you're connecting very different shots And it's playful, but it's also extremely intellectual in the way that French New Wave was trying to be. (laughs) What's masterful about it is that it connects the two traditions. It adds a seamlessness to it that Hollywood wants, that American films are really known for, but it's incredibly intelligent and so meaningful. Every single cut, she's telling you something. And that beach scene is an excellent example there are more cuts in that than you would see in a typical like Hollywood film. It, they're funny. A lot of them are really funny where she cuts you know, between a conversation that the chief is having with another man on the beach and then suddenly his eyes just peek over his like shoulder. <laughs> it's pretty funny, but it's also terrifying. I shouldn't say again that her editing is what makes this a masterpiece, but I really want to right now.
0: <laughs> in addition to the editing, there's also tons of great camera work, right? Like, Which is something that you have to be able to think of while you are in the middle of shooting the scene. You have to get the right lens on. You have to put the camera in the right position. Yeah. Like, And Jaws has some really noteworthy uses of the camera.
1: Yeah. So one of the ones that I remember learning in school was the long shot when we get a conversation between Chief Brody and Mayor Vaughn. And it's when Mm -hmm. Brody has just found out that there's a likely shark on the loose that has just killed a young woman. And he is rushing to uh, rescue some Boy Scouts who are out swimming to try and get a merit badge. And he's rushing to get on this little ferry boat to take him out to the boys' And while he gets on the boat, Mayor Vaughn and his league of businessmen drive up in their car, drive right onto the ferry and get out of the boat and start talking to him. And they have a whole conversation and the camera just stays perfectly still while they're having this conversation on the ferry. And in the background, you see everything moving with the boat. So you get all of these views in the back of all these different boats and the people on the land. And it's it's an excellent shot. It's really hard to pick up on when you're initially watching it because it feels so seamless. You don't even realize that the entire Mm. time they're having this conversation, the camera hasn't cut. And uh, even at the end of it, the chief and the mayor step to the side away from the other men to have a private conversation. They just step into the foreground of the shot right up to the camera and start talking to each other. And that's when the mayor says, you know, Chief, if you say barracuda, people are going to get upset. Right. Like If you say shark, you're going to have a panic on the 4th of July. And it's very clear what the mayor's intentions are. And it's all happening in this one shot. And mm-hmm. you see the chief, his priorities having to change and adjust to the political realities of the town. Because it all starts with him in a panic trying to rescue these boys. And by the end, he feels defeated by the pressure from the mirror. Yeah. So that long shot is so good and you could totally miss it. It's all psychological. You yell barracuda. Everybody says, huh? What?
0: You yell shark. So we've got a panic on our hands on the fourth of July. So what are some other long shots that are pretty famous? Like so there's like would you say like nineteen seventeen is like like <laughs> meant to to be like a like a continuous long shot, right?
1: Yeah, um, there's also Orson Welles loves a long shot. Yes, yeah, and so in in Touch of Evil, one of his movies, there's a long shot that starts out the film, and it's at the border between the U.S. and Mexico. It's a couple in a car driving across the border and you just follow them the entire time and then the camera turns and watches them drive off into the distance and you get a sense of both sides of the border and in the distance they blow up and it kind of initiates the whole plot of the movie and uh the first shot in Boogie Nights uh P.T. Anderson Paul Thomas Anderson does the same thing where he's like Spielberg where he loves movies And he starts off his movie with this really incredible long shot, a crane shot, actually, that descends into the line, into the club of all of the people who you'll follow throughout Boogie Nights. Um, But it's the same thing where you follow a car into a thing. And so that's what's great about Jaws. It's another long shot that involves a car where you see... Transportation is pretty popular in a long shot because it's, it's fun. It flows. It logically flows for an audience to follow a car. Or something like that for a long right. interrupted mm-hmm. period of time so so another really great moment of cinematography in jaws is the incredible dolly zoom on the beach when chief brody sees the shark attack and the shark eat the little boy and that dolly zoom that whole beach scene in itself you could watch that scene and learn a lot of what I learned in film classes in college. Like it's just <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's pretty much a masterclass in editing and cinematography.
0: And the dolly zoom is when it looks like like your subject is staying still or getting bigger and then the background is receding or like, getting further away. It looks like you're like having this really weird
2: distortion. Yeah, like in La Le- Yes. Remember that scene in La mm-hmm. Yeah, when they're on the balcony. Yeah. That's a pr-
1: I, that's a wonderful example of it.
0: And they use it a lot in, like, Vertigo to Mm -hmm. show, like, almost, like, a dizzying
1: effect. Yes. Especially in Vertigo. You know, earlier you told us how, you know, Spielberg having to make up for all these production difficulties was channeling Hitchcock to build tension and build suspense. And it's like he took one of Hitchcock's tricks and he elevated it even further because it's such a critical moment to have the chief of police like our protagonist come face to face with the shark for the first time to see the blood in the water and and the kid and the panic around it and to have the dolly zoom in that moment is just a perfect execution of of that camera trick. (laughs)
2: This is considered the first major summer blockbuster, right? When I was rewatching it, I was very surprised by how artistic it really was. Not that a blockbuster can't be artistic. I was just really surprised by sort of the depth of some of the storytelling and, of course, the editing compared to how we would consider m- more contemporary blockbusters, like the evolution of the blockbuster. Mm. I mean, Annie, you know more about like film history, there was the new Hollywood. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the 60s and 70s. When, when would we consider that over? Is Jaws a part of that because it's Spielberg and he was like a director not and it wasn't the studio? Or is it considered the beginning of the end of that? Like where does Jaws fit into this change in Hollywood in the 70s and 80s?
1: Yeah, I, I'm not really sure. I think that Steven Spielberg... I mean, of course he's revered, but I think it's also, it's not cool to say that you love Steven Spielberg. Right. <laughs> like, right. You know, because he became, he's so mainstream, he's so universally yes. beloved, and he was so acclaimed, that I think it's not, I don't know a lot of film students who say they love Steven Spielberg. And when I think of, you know, Steven Spielberg fans, I think of Dawson from Dawson's Creek. Right? <laughs> who... <laughs> was obsessed with Steven Spielberg and his whole character is built around wanting to become the next Spielberg. Maybe you guys don't love Dawson's Creek like I do, but his whole bedroom is just full of movie posters and the Jaws movie poster is on his wall throughout the course of the show. Like,
2: I'm looking at his filmography right now. He's got a lot of hits, but he also has a lot of misses. I don't think anyone would argue that, like, Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan aren't trying to be serious art I think but he's trying in both of those movies to do that but he definitely I mean these these blockbusters he's definitely made more traditional blockbusters like Indiana Jones right oh so good um, I love
1: Indiana Jones yeah so
2: good. <laughs> catch me if you can which is one of my favorite movies but there's not like a lot there with catch me
1: if you can it's like it's a great popcorn movie in my opinion and I love it okay pause what does that mean Dig deep. What does that mean? Because shouldn't Jaws be a popcorn movie? But I think that there's more interesting stuff going on in Jaws
2: in terms of the direction, the editing, the music than is going on in Catch Me If You Can. Does that make sense? I mean, I agree. He also he also directed The Color Purple in 1985, which I always forget that was Spielberg. That was on Dawson's bedroom wall. He's done some very serious movies and he's done them very well like he you know he's not um he's not a michael bay that's true
1: like spielberg i don't know i think appropriately rated what do you guys think i think so because i think that a lot of the greatness of this of jaws isn't necessarily spielberg i think it's john williams i think it's verna fields i think it's that he had a great team behind him he's 27 he he's the director that takes a lot of responsibility, but also, I mean, Verna Fields was running interference between him and the studio when he was going over budget, right? She's she's mm-hmm. Mother Cutter. She's the mom, right? She's taking care of a lot of things for him. And I think that when I think of the greatness of Jaws, I don't necessarily attribute all of it to 27-year-old Steven Spielberg. Sure, sure. Well, I guess, like, what's the director's job in a movie?
0: Like, what can the director take credit for? Is it bringing together all these people? Is that, or that's the producer?
1: Right. Right. I wouldn't say that Spielberg's an auteur. You wouldn't. I don't think that there's a specific style that I associate Mm -hmm. exactly with Spielberg. I think there's a feeling. Yes.
0: Yeah, definitely more of a feeling. Yes.
1: Yeah. It's always like a hope.
2: Yes. There's a
1: sentimentality
2: to Spielberg's yeah. movies that feels very American. Like you were talking about like French mm-hmm. New Wave and stuff. It feels so American. Agreed. Even Schindler's List, the, the the approach, the atmosphere, the optimism, the hope, as Annie said. I think the sentimentality. Yeah. These are movies that are made with emotion, even though they're blockbusters, even though they're action movies. Um, there's always a interest in like childhood or space or, or something bigger than yourself that connects people. Even in Jaws, even though these three men um, are so different, have all these issues, ultimately they're, they're united in the face of this larger
1: uh, force, right? Oh, mm-hmm. yes. I really want to talk about this. I want to talk about how Jaws brings people together. <laughs> okay, let's talk about it. Let's do it. In Jaws, there's so much more of a class dynamic than I ever mm-hmm. realized before. The character of Quint is this kind of salty fisherman, and he's a veteran of the Second World War, and he butts heads with the rich, young, super well-educated Matt Hooper, played by Richard Diffus. Independently wealthy.
0: Independently (laughs)
1: wealthy, (laughs) yes. When Chief Brody is bringing them together for the last 45 minutes where they're all stuck on a boat um, fighting the shark they meet and Quint takes his, Hooper's hands and says, you've got city hands. Mm-hmm. And, and Hooper is so offended. He's like, I'm not going to take any of this working class hero crap. <laughs> and like, throws a little <laughs> fit. <laughs> you got city hands, Mr. Hooper. You've been counting money all your life. All right, all right. Hey, I don't need this. I don't need this working class hero crap. They eventually have to become united against this common enemy of the shark that is trying to kill them. But even throughout when they're trapped on this boat together, they have different methods, they have different ways of going about things, they have vastly different backgrounds, and it's really hard for them to find common ground and come together. I I think it's really worth us talking about and kind of digesting what that means because I think for me, when Brody does finally triumph over the shark, in the final moments it's a combination of these two men and their two backgrounds when he is holding on and he has his gun and he shoots the canister and the gun is from Quint and the canister is from Hooper but it's the combination of the two that finally triumphs over the shark
2: yeah he's like the Kirk right (laughs) he's like the Captain (laughs) Kirk
1: (laughs) please elaborate (laughs) I mean, do I need to? (laughs) Yes, you need to. Yes,
2: Hooper is the Spock, right? He's the science, and then Quint, Quint is Bones McCoy. He's uh, the best faith, right? Mm -hmm. And and like an emotion, that sort of a thing, and then (laughs) Brody is Kirk, where he's the in between. He brings together the best of both. He's the he mediates it. I could see that interpretation. I I could see a more cynical take. I mean, just the fact that who is the one who dies? (laughs) Spoiler. I ultimately read into it what Annie has read into it. But I think also what's interesting is that there is a lot of space for interpretation in Jaws, which is interesting because I didn't think there would be when I went in.
0: (laughs) So in the book, the only one who survives is Brody. Interesting. Well, Brody and the shark. They both survive. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously, I hated the book, so I don't even want to talk about the book. Let's just talk about the movie. But yeah. So um, Fidel Castro watched the Jaws. Sick. He had a very Marxist interpretation of the movie. And he said that he thought
2: the shark was like anti-capitalist. Um, well, I think another element that ties into the class is I, th- I think you could also see Jaws as a reinterpretation or like an update of Moby Dick which is in some ways the great American novel. And I think Jaws is updating some of those themes to the 20th century. And I think one of those themes has to be in class conflict. I think the movie does come down on the side that that there has to be a mediation of the past, which is represented by Quint, who is like the Captain Ahab character, right? And the present or future, which would be science, which would be Hooper, And we have to find the in-between. We have to combine them.
0: Annie, didn't you recently read Moby Dick?
1: So I did read Moby Dick this year for the first time. And while I was watching this movie, I was also thinking about that a lot. I think it's hard not to. But I was also trying to think who these characters kind of mapped on to uh, in the story. I think Quint was obviously a, a Captain Ahab type I was struggling to decide who was an Ishmael, right? If it's like a Hooper or if it's Brody, because you know Ishmael's the narrator of Moby Dick. And so I was leaning towards Brody because things seem to be very much focalized through Chief Brody in Jaws. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, Ishmael is a little bit erudite. If you actually read Moby Dick, he makes so many literary references and <laughs> is very... Mm well-educated. That made him seem a little more like Hooper. Mm -hmm. But I think as, you know, an American story, I think Moby Dick is very connected to Jaws. I also read when reading up on some trivia on the movie that Spielberg wanted the introductory scene for Quint to be him watching a film adaptation of Moby Dick in a movie theater Hmm. and sitting in the back of the theater and laughing so hard that everyone gets annoyed and leaves the theater (laughs) Um, (laughs) because he thinks that the representation of killing a whale is so ridiculous. (laughs) Um, Interesting. But that Spielberg couldn't get the rights to show that version of Moby Dick because the scene he wanted to show had Gregory Peck in it. And Gregory Peck refused to give up his rights and let him show it in the movie because he hated his own performance in Moby Dick so much that he didn't want it to be seen again really? by audiences. Yeah. Wow. How bad could it be? I don't know. <laughs> it's a great question, but apparently he thought it was bad enough to refuse to grant permission to Spielberg to let it be used in the movie. Wow. For, for class stuff, I think another interesting thing goes back to the introduction to Quint's character that Spielberg actually ends up using in the movie. Which I think is one of the best introductions and entrances for any character in any movie ever. And it's when Quint is sitting in the meeting, like kind of the town council meeting, and everyone's bickering, and he just scratches his (laughs) hands down the chalkboard over the doodle of the shark, and then gives that like grisly growling speech
2: you all know me
1: know how I earn a
2: living I'll catch this
0: bird for you but it ain't gonna be easy bad fish not like going down the pond chasing bluegills or tommy this shark
2: swallow you whole shaking tenderizing down you go
1: and one of the things that he says in the speech...
2: I don't want no volunteers. I don't want no mates. There's too many captains on this island.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Which is amazing and a huge part of you know the hyper-masculinity of this movie. But I think it's also mm-hmm. really important in the class conversation where it's like everyone feels like they're in charge and you have all these conflicting interests going on and especially in that room... It's the conflict between Chief Brody and the mayor in the town. Yeah, that's a great line. It's so great, but you know, even the last part of the movie when you have the three men from very different backgrounds on this boat, they all think that they're right. <laughs> they all think that their approach is right. They all feel like they're the captain. And uh, well, there's just there's too many captains on this boat. Is the idea? They needed a bigger boat. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: on the boat, they do give each other space like they do mm-hmm. let Hooper get into his shark cage and push it over you know like Quint right. could have totally pulled rank and said no way never like Quint also says like Hooper you
1: you drive the boat like you steer the boat from Quint's perspective right because he even says to Hooper he says you wealthy college boys don't have the education enough to admit when you're <laughs> so wrong yeah. right so <laughs> it's like the, <laughs> there's an intelligence to knowing you know, when your method's been tried out and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately to find out what's right, you have to use listens to everyone's opinion, right? As the captain, that that's a sign of leadership, <laughs> but that's also, mm-hmm. yes, it's not working class hero crap. It's good stuff. <laughs> and Tuper can shove it. You know, I'm just, this is so kind of, okay. This is kind of random. Talking about the dynamic between these
2: men, the obsession the personalities. I'm also getting connections to like Zodiac by David Fincher, right? Which is all about how these men are kind of brought together and in tension with each other over this obsessive quest to get Hmm. this killer, right? Hmm.
1: Right. That's what Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yes. Are those our our men, our captains in, in Zodiac? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Totally. And, like, Robert Downey Jr., I guess, would be more of the, like, his character would be more the, I don't know, the the Quint? Like, the Ahab character? Mark Ruffalo's literally a cop. (laughs) I think that there's something that's very, like, that dynamic is interesting to watch. There's something about it that's very compelling. The classic, what do all these white men have to overcome in (laughs) order to bond together?
0: It's their different education, their different... Class, they're different mm-hmm. occupations. Yeah. So you know, yeah. I bet we could watch most movies and find <laughs> that. But Zodiac is a really good tie-in because it does have that like obsessive element. They're obsessed with finding the Zodiac killer. These guys are obsessed with
2: finding Jaws. Yeah, finding the shark. I think also what's interesting is when we when we opened up this episode, we were chatting that. The scenes that stayed with us most in like the 20 years since I've seen this movie um, is when they're on the boat talking about their scars, not really so much the action sequences, but that scene. Yeah. Right. That's the scene that I remembered the most clearly.
1: So I rewatched this with my boyfriend. And when we got to that scene, I said to him, I was like, this is the best scene in the movie. This is the most famous scene of this movie. And he was like, <laughs> and he was like, what? He paused it, and he was like, what are you talking about? I can name five off the top of my head that are more famous than this. What? And I was like, no, I swear. This is the best and most famous scene of this movie. <laughs> like <laughs> Um, which so I, I, don't I don't know. I don't know that I stand by that. <laughs> but for some reason, when it started, I was so excited to see it again because I love it so much that I was convinced that everybody also loves this scene as much as I do. <laughs>
2: I seriously was like, this is the scene I remember the most <laughs> from this whole movie. Yeah. How is that the case? It's crazy. I mean, it's excellent. most famous scene in the whole movie <laughs> yes. is coming please, up. Please call and write in with what you think is the most famous scene of this movie. I if know. it's not the scar-sharing scene, you're wrong.
1: <laughs> Thank you. <No. laughs> I know it's the shark in the boat, and we need a bigger boat. I get yeah, it. Yeah, obviously. Like, <laughs> I, I logically understand. And the dolly zoom on the beach. I think
0: the most famous scene is the opening scene, the swimming scene with the first. What? That's actually death. probably
1: right. That's probably the most famous.
0: Is yeah. it really? That's the most famous scene in this movie. Oh, man.
1: That didn't even occur to me as an option. But yes. Okay. I see it. There are a lot of good scenes in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, it's, honestly, it's shocking. Yeah. I remember, Jesse, you saying that you, we were going to do this. And I was, I was like, uh oh, I guess. I think we all had that same feeling of like, okay. But yeah, now I'm sitting here arguing about like, well, this is one of the greatest scenes ever. <laughs> That's the best introduction to any character in any movie. I'm just like I've never expected this type of language to come out of my mouth talking about jaws. A lot of superlatives <laughs> coming from you. This is very interesting. So you see, like, shout out to my friend Leah, who
2: was like, This is the best movie. Is worth revisiting. I was skeptical. Sorry, Leah. <laughs> you were you right. Were right. <laughs> Vindicated. <laughs>
0: I picked this movie not only because it's set in the summer and it's on a beach and I desperately want to be on a beach Mm. this summer at some point. Mm. Um, Not this kind of beach, but, you know. (laughs) No sharks, please. But it's also, it's a summer blockbuster. And I really wanted to to do that. And my initial thought was, like, Independence Day. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's a fun movie. Because Bill Pullman's in it. Shout out. Recognize Bill Pullman. But... (laughs) You know, I think there's more to talk about with Jaws and also because it's the first blockbuster. I would really like to talk about the concept of the summer blockbuster. Yeah. So before Jaws, movies released in the summer were movies that the studio wanted to get out and like didn't really have high expectations for. And Christmas was like the main release period. But because Jaws was so delayed, it like basically tripled its Production time, it couldn't be released for Christmas. So they decided to release it that summer. When they were testing it, audiences loved it. Mm -hmm. So they did this really intense ad campaign, which has become the first hallmark like one of the main hallmarks of a summer blockbuster, really intense ad campaign leading up to a wide release in many, many theaters rather than a limited Mm. initial limited release and then a wide release. Mm. Um, So this was the first time that a studio had done this and they repeated it again with the same success with star Wars two years later. And then when you look at all the other movies where they've done that, it's been like mid to late June, pre 4th of July
2: releases what is the first movie that you think of, besides Jaws, what is the first movie
1: that you think of when you hear summer blockbuster? I think of the first Transformers movie with Shia LaBeouf and Megan Fox. I do too. Yeah. yeah why is that? Well, because I think we were the right age. I was like 14 when
2: that came out, I think. Yeah. Maybe 13. And I remember it was such a phenomenon. Yeah. Transformers. Like Megan Fox, like leaning over the car, Mm you know, mm -hmm. all that stuff, and Shia LaBeouf. I remember that being such a moment. And then the second one I think of would be the Avengers, like the first Avengers movie, which I think was 2012. Such a moment. Everyone knew that movie, saw that movie.
0: Do you know how old I was when Independence Day was released? How
2: old? I was 14. (laughs) 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 That's also the first movie you mentioned, when we were talking about summer blockbusters before, you're like, yeah, Independence Day. So I think that's the age when it, when like a summer blockbuster leaves an impression on you. Because I definitely think yeah. Transformers for sure.
0: Probably because there's all this hype targeted at you, <laughs> and you are psyched to go with your friends and maybe your family and go and see the movie.
1: Yeah, it's an experience. I was trying to think of this movie as the movie that came out in the summer of 1975. And, you know, when I was thinking of kind of the class tensions and how informed my viewing of it was by the last year, like 2020, and Mm -hmm. looking at matt hooper richard dreyfuss is like a little fauci-esque character and the mayor wanting to keep everything open and you know a business owner shouting in the town meeting you know 24 hours is like three weeks Like, like like a lot of unreasonable responses to a clearly fatal and terrifying thing that's happening and so i was trying to think well what would this feel like in 1975 when it was released right and feel very different from how it feels watching it right now in 2021. But then I was also thinking, okay, well, this is you know, post-Nixon and the mayor's in the pocket of a lot of these business people and he's got the business interests in mind and there's a feeling that they're kind of crooks and that the profit is all that really matters and they'll do whatever right. it takes to keep their power, even if it means you know, encouraging people to go swimming when there's a shark in the water, <laughs> right? Yeah, so I mean, I was just trying to situate it in the year of 1975, because watching it today, I just couldn't separate it for myself from how the last year has gone. That's it, goodbye. I'm not gonna waste my time arguing with a man who's lining up to be a hot lunch. I'm gonna see you later. Wait, right. I mean, we think of the shark as the real villain of this movie, I guess, but he does bring people together.
2: I think that's the ending is about restoring the common man and common decency to a place of of centrality, right? So Brody is the one who survives. He's the one who's right in the end, that kind of thing.
1: You know, the mayor's is a villain. Is a big villain, a big bad in this. The business interests are a bit of a big bad, and the political interests are a big problem. And they are obstacles in the way of the hero, the, the police chief, Brody. Even though his mission is to save the town from the terror of the shark, it's those men, the politicians and the businessmen, who are standing in his way to saving everyone. Yeah, all the suits. They're literally all in suits <laughs> in that fairy scene. A lot of Jaws, a lot of themes in Jaws felt very American. A lot of the discussions of, among the people on Amity Island about what it means to be an Islander, the class dynamic between Quint and Hooper, the guns, lots of guns towards the end. Like, <laughs> yeah. It felt like an American summer. But it's also, you know, having grown up when, you know, Frankie and I did, you know, this whole idea of always thinking that there's some terror or threat of terror always in america you know it's not sharks necessarily but it's it's sharks it's razors in your apples it's terrorism it's you know al-qaeda it's there's always some terror that's imbued into everything growing up the intense emphasis on commercialism in the face of the threat of terrorism Mm -hmm. and both of those should be how and inform how you behave as an american (laughs) it's like there's a shark in that water but why aren't you swimming (laughs) Get an ice cream. Yeah. I think Fidel Castro hit it
0: on the head. He had the right analysis. I think his analysis was actually of the book and not the movie, but, you know, I think think he got it. This is about predatory capitalism. A great American tradition. Yeah. That reminds me, what do we think of this man versus nature movie? What do we think of this negative portrayal of a shark? Like this quote unquote rogue shark who's out to get people who's like outsmarting people and trying to think of smart ways to get at them to eat them <laughs> what do we think of that i feel a little bit offended
2: on behalf of sharks of great like, white I heard- sharks <laughs> i think yeah they get a bad rep. they get a bad rep, you know right it's total sensationalism i mean I- and then you know what doesn't help is like sharknado Thanks, Jaws, for
0: Shark NATO. I don't know. I just felt very, like, uncomfortable knowing that this is not how sharks behave and, like, this weird promotion of these rogue sharks who
2: just need to be murdered felt ecologically unsound. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I see it. I don't know. I just, like, have you ever walked, been to the na- like the National Aquarium in Baltimore and you go through the shark part and you're like, oh, hell no. I need to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I I am scared for my life even though I know that there's like world class glass protecting me right now. I think like the great white shark is one of the scariest creatures on earth. Is that earned or unearned, Jesse? Who am I to say? All I know is that I'd shit my pants if I if I saw a shark come up on the beach. That's all.
0: Yeah, but I mean I just think we we outsize these risks that are actually quite small and it's very easy to feed on that fear like I'm uncomfortable with the idea of like taking this animal that acts mostly on instinct and then attributing these really sinister motives to it like that just feels but that very people
2: humans have always done that I
1: know Jessie, I, like that. I feel like <laughs> I feel like you relate to the shark Jesse because The shark was nicknamed Bruce on set after Spielberg's lawyer. And that's what you're actually offended about because you're a lawyer. (laughs) Well, I am also, yes, that also
0: offends me. I feel, I also feel offended because, you know, what they needed in order to make this movies, you know, what Spielberg needed in order to make all of his money and to protect all of his money and to make all these deals. He needed lawyers. So, so there. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not saying that sharks I'm not saying that sharks are not like dangerous or you know, that they that they don't pose like some level of threat to somebody somewhere, but
1: not as much as lawyers.
0: <laughs> it's anti-shark, anti-lawyer propaganda. And I won't stand for it. It lives to kill
2: a mindless eating machine.
1: It will attack and devour anything it is as if god created the devil and gave him jaws
0: well do we have any uh, recommendations yeah so i'm gonna just go with mine first you know i don't love horror movies but one movie that i saw this past year for the first time that i really enjoyed that i would recommend because it has a lot of similar themes is the host which is a 2006 movie um, by South Korean filmmaker Bong Joon-ho. And it's about an aquatic monster wreaking havoc <laughs> on a, a city in South Korea, a family. It's got, like, class issues. It's got family dynamics. It. I really, really enjoyed it. It mashes up a lot of different genres. It's got humor. It's got action and horror and, like, so that's my recommendation, and I think it's also a good introduction to South Korean cinema if you are not familiar. So,
1: I, I enjoy. That's an excellent pick. I loved that movie. That was, and it was also excellent to watch this year, in light of recent events. Annie, do you have a recommendation? My recommendation for today are going to be two recommendations related to things that we've already discussed. So first, building on my love for women editors in the history of film, particularly Berna Fields, who makes Jaws shine, I'm going to recommend a online resource. It's a comprehensive guide to hundreds of female editors throughout the history of film all over the world. It's called Edited by and it's excellent, it's super fun. You can spend a lot of time just reading through these biographies of female editors, and Verna Fields is featured on there. But it was put together by filmmaker and professor Sue Friedrich. It's called Edited By. I will link to it on the Cinema Silo website in the show notes for today's episode. Mm. And then my second recommendation is Herman Melville's Movie Dick. Not to necessarily read it if you don't feel like reading it because it is a bit of a colossal undertaking, but I loved it this year. And there's this amazing project online by the University of Plymouth, their arts institute, where they took every chapter of Moby Dick and had someone famous read it to you. That's cool. And so it makes it a little bit more fun and you've got the likes of Tilda Swinton, Benedict Cumberbatch, and poets like Mary Oliver. Like There's somebody for everybody. It's really fun, and it really brings it to life to have so many different people who love the story read it aloud to you, and it's available on so many different platforms. Again, I will link to it on our website for today. Cool. Cool. That's great.
2: Okay, I'm going to recommend also two movies my first recommendation is going to be uh, Alfred Hitchcock's 1963 movie *The Birds*, because I think that Spielberg took a lot from this movie um, and was very influenced by it. And I think if you're interested in the creation of *Jaws*, what went into the not only the the editing, um, but but the tension in general, that he builds in that movie. The Birds is probably a good place to start. My second recommendation is going to be another man-versus-nature movie. deals with some of the same themes that we talked about today with Jaws, but from a different perspective, from a different time, and with a female character as a part of the lead. So I'm going to recommend the 1960 Soviet movie, Letter Never Sent. <laughs> Which three of us have seen. I really liked it.
1: <laughs> love it. I love that movie. It's so good. <laughs> and it follows... Another movie I didn't think I would like that I loved. Like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> Yep. It doesn't have a monster. So it's not like the birds. It's not like the host. But it is man versus nature. And it follows um, a group of geologists, including a woman, uh, in Siberia as they go looking for diamonds, and they are trapped by a forest fire, and they have to survive and find their way through the Siberian winter. And I recommend this because I think Jaws is a very American approach to man versus nature. It's very masculine. I think Letter Never Sent has a very interesting female character, very interesting dynamic between the characters, just like in Jaws, but from a Soviet perspective from 1960. So those are my two recommendations after Jaws. Awesome.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Come back next week when we'll have the final episode in our summer series. It's Annie's pick. And Annie, what are you picking?
1: Next week, we will be talking about Alfonso Caron's Itumama Tambien.
0: Yes, so
1: good. Oh, oh Lord.
0: All right, here we go. All right, stay tuned. Uh, rate, (laughs) review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Cinemasilopod email us at cinemasilopod at gmail.com we're so excited that you're listening we really appreciate it oh and also head over and take a look at our show notes at cinemasilopod.com we put a ridiculous amount of work into those show notes and there are tons (laughs) of links to everything that we talk about in these episodes as well as our recommendations. So that's a great place, head on over and we'll see you next time in the silo.